Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. Today's guest is Kurt Biscara, or as most people know him, Kirky B. He's played with so many great artists such as Elton John, Mick Jagger, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Sarah McLaughlin, Lana Del Rey, Johnny Cash, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. His pocket is deep and his stories are endless. I brought him on the show to break down the top five moments in his career that best represent his legacy as a player. From moving to LA to pursue a career in drumming at MI as a young kid who couldn't even read sheet music to eventually playing the biggest stages in the world, Kirky B is a man who takes opportunities and smashes them out of the park. His mixture of being at the right place, the right time, with the right information to nail the gig and stand out is a common theme. Do your homework, play to the song, know the technology of the day, and be more like Kirky B. Now you don't even have to listen to the show, but please do. Enjoy my chat with Kirky B. I do have to say, um, your career reminds me of you know that that Chris Farley um, it's the, the Chris Farley show on SNL when he's sitting there and he's like remember the time you played with blank that was awesome because you've played with every <laughs> you play with all the greats um, how do you balance wanting to say what you want to say as a drummer and then also you know balancing when that particular artist wants you to shine versus just do what's on the record how do you how do you evaluate how that process goes for you? Well, it's certainly about again <clears throat> serving the music and being there, whether it be in the studio or live. So, it's always about being able to have the arsenal, the tool, the toolbox, if you will, to um, to pull it out whenever you need the monkey wrench, the crescent wrench, the the screwdriver, the hammer, and you know to have the facility to to bring it or to have the facility to completely have the um, uh, wherewithal to just completely lay out and play nothing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I can't stress that enough. You know, sometimes the best drummers are the drummers that are just sitting in the back playing nothing. Absolutely. And it's like, that's that to me is like the complete circle of a musical drummer like the guy that could the guy or gal that could just sit there and not play anything yet say everything absolutely and i've always wanted to achieve that level and i'm still in my mind thinking i need to do that but it's just like if, if i if i could play less notes and make the same amount of money <laughs> I, I'm down. <laughs> Sounds pretty efficient to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about efficiency. Yeah. And um, so we had you on the show. I mean, it's, it's called Big Fat Five. And so sometimes people bring in the top five influences they had. And for you, I was really excited. You actually are similar to James Gadsden, which, again, there'll be another tie in later that you wanted to talk about five uh, moments that really sum up the span of your career and big moments that made you into the drummer you are today. And so I was really excited that that's the angle you took. And so we can just jump right into the first one, which is your first pro gig with Morris Day and the time. Yeah, man. Well, um, <clears throat> I was attending a Musicians Institute at the time in 84. Uh, I started in 84 at Musicians Institute, PIT. And um, 
it was toward the end of uh, graduating. It was a year-long course at the time. And so I joined in September 84 to go to school there. And then uh, this was August of 85. So, yeah, a month prior to graduating. Um, I was walking the hallways in school. And uh, the, the talk in the hallways was, hey, man, um, you know, the guy from Purple Rain, the movie Purple Rain, yeah. the, sing the singer in the band The Time, he's auditioning at SIR down the street. I was like, oh, my God. So being a big fan of Prince and The Time and Vanity Six and, you know, that whole Minneapolis scene, I had to go down there and at least scope out what was happening. So, um, so I went down there. And sure enough, he was auditioning drummers. It was a cattle call. There was like 50 drummers there. And, uh, you know, they had a list of drummers. You know, they, you had to sign up and be on the list. And I was the last guy, and it was toward the end of the day. So, you know, I knocked on the door, and I was like, you know, excuse me, but can you um, put me on the list? He's like, well, we're all full for the day. And I was like, well, you know, I won't take much of your time, but... But I know Morris's music. I, I could do this, you know, take you two seconds. He's like, ah, all right, we'll fit you in. So sure enough, I was like drummer 51, you know. And uh, I, I was the last one for Morris to see. And I went in and auditioned on two songs, um, The Bird, which was a really big hit in the movie Purple Rain, mm -hmm. and Jungle Love, the other one. Of course, yeah. So I auditioned on those two songs and um, I could see Morris's head going back and forth. And I thought, OK, something's going on here. Either he's digging it or I don't know, he's hungry and tired and wants to go yeah, home. Exactly. You That's know, where my brain would go. He's obviously not digging it. What else yeah. is he bobbing his head for? Yeah. Right. So then he's like, OK, we'll be in touch. I said, well, OK, cool. But uh, can I play 777-9311 for you? And he was and he goes, you know that? And I was like, yeah. So he goes, all right, go ahead. And so the musical director, Freeze, starts playing it on keyboards. And I start busting out the beat. And Morris's head starts going back and forth, like, big time, you know. And then we play through it, you know, like three or four minutes. And then we stop. And then he peeps over his shades and goes, you want a job? And I <laughs> yeah. said, Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And so that's that's the uh, that's the story of my professional beginnings of a drummer in Hollywood. So, can you describe like the setup for someone that has it in me? Because I've never gotten a job via a cattle call. It's always been networking and who you know. Can you describe when you walk in that room? Is it him sitting in the back as you described, and then just the music director on a keyboard, or is there? Is there a backing track you play to? Like, how back in those days did you play those songs? In you know, I, you know, I've auditioned for a ton of bands, and um, you know, back then because it was so ample, you know, you could go to any rehearsal hall in L.A. and there was always a tour going on mm -hmm. or some band that needed a drummer. So then it was just the band was there. And they'd have you come in and, and play down the tune with the band. Mm -hmm. You know, th there weren't tracks back then. There weren't computers back then. There weren't iPhones or what was then? There wasn't even CDs. Cassettes? 
<laughs> but but it was like you know this is late 80s early 90s so yeah it was just the band the band there and uh you'd go in and it was all about not only just uh your ability to play but it was a look it was a vibe you know a certain feel um you know luckily at the time when i got morris's gig you know it was kind of fashionable to be a asian drummer that could play funk you know that oh, was really? kind of, okay that was that kind of helped you know what i mean yeah yeah and um you know i guess it was an oddity or something at at the time but um yeah you know back then and uh, musicians relied upon each other to be able to either audition or, you know, make make a recording or go in the studio or whatever. It was more like a like a family oriented feeling, you know, like a a, a, a gang. Mm-hmm. You would show up and there you are to make the music happen, you know. When you were looking at the the list of drummers, were there any drummers you saw? Not that you have to name any, but were there any ones that you saw? You're like, oh. Well, he got the gig, or she got oh, the gig. Oh, dude, it, they were heavies. There were heavies there. I won't name them, but yeah, yeah, there were there were heavies, and I was convinced. I was like, well, this punk kid from Santa Maria, California, he's not going to get it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sure enough, I did, and the rest is history. And you know, that's why we all moved to Los Angeles or a big city, you know, New mm-hmm. York, Nashville. We all want to make it big and 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 uh succeed in in our art you know yeah so i i never ever tell anybody it can't be done because i'm i'm living proof you know i i did it and like thousands of others have you know Mm -hmm. well let's just drop in actually a few for people who might not have heard of more stay in the time let's actually drop in a few songs um i i picked two of them jungle love was one of them but um, the first one, I love the intro, the drum beat is uh, The Walk. Ooh. So it's gonna, yeah, that's a fun one. So let's just play, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the first few, few bars of The Walk. So uh, that's from the album What Time Is It, which I believe is the same album that has 777-9311 on it. Yep. Um, and this next one's uh, Jungle Love, which is probably the more, more commercial hit of them. Yeah, definitely. And those, th- those like flams uh, coming in. Da, 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 da. All right, so yeah, um, go check out the time. Go see Purple Rain. I mean, they're they're part of that movie. So it's, funky, uh, exactly. Very good stuff. Um, yeah, and so I could be wrong, but I thought I saw in a previous interview you had. Did Morris Day was he the one that gave you the nickname Kirky B, or was that something beforehand? Or you know, it it all kind of came crashing down on me from the time I was a baby. Okay. <laughs> As my Filipino grandmother couldn't say my name, Kurt, she could only say Kurk. And so she would rub my cheek and go, Kurki, Kurki, Kurki. So then there's that. 
then fast forward to Morris mm-hmm. and calling me Kirky B and also Jeff Picaro calling me Kirky B. So it just all fell into place. I, I, unbeknownst me, you know, and it just yeah. because I've been called that all my life, it just I guess it just manifested itself into that. Yeah. And um so that's my name, even though my real name is Kurt. Yeah. C U R T, you know, Kirky B is the nickname and I'm stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are worse things to be stuck with. It's yeah, an awesome little nickname. Totally. So. Thank you, man. Um, all right. So number two, and this is kind of ties into another thing I was saying with the Chris Farley thing. You played with Elton John for a while. So um, yes, I did. I mean, that's a great number two in the, in the span of your career. So let's yeah. let's talk about how you got hooked up with Elton John. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Dear friend of mine, Greg Penny was producing um he's he's been a producer for a really long time here in los angeles and he called me to play on a duets record uh elton john duets and uh so i i played on that and the there was a few songs that i played on that he produced uh and the duets record it was with uh one with little richard one with katie lang the one with Katie Lang is the opening track of that of that record called Teardrops. And uh, so I was introduced through Greg Penny uh, to Elton that way by playing on that record. Um, and then one day I got a call from Elton himself saying, hey, um, do you want to go on tour? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who is this? Um, Sorry. Yeah, right. And uh and it was a dream gig because it was he wanted to do a double drumming tour with both myself and Nigel Olson. So oh my it was God. like it was like a dream come true, right? Like, you know, to be playing double drums with your hero. Absolutely. So um yeah, we, we played Madison Square Garden. And uh, that's that's available on DVD, and I think there's a bunch of YouTube clips on that. Okay. But uh, yeah, got to play Madison Square Garden with Elton, and uh, we did one other gig in Pennsylvania. And there was supposed to be a world tour with that, but unfortunately, Elton was going through some um, legal stuff with his ex-manager. Oh, I remember <laughs> There was that. some yeah, yeah. sort of legal battle thing, and so unfortunately, the tour got uh cut short obviously and um yeah that that would have been such a fun tour to do but um you know to play double drums with nigel olsen come on in madison square garden and have it recorded so you can reference it and enjoy that memory yeah that's great but to have toured the world i think it would have been just (laughs) extraordinary you know yeah Hey, y'all, I wanted to, (laughs) I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. 
And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye how would you describe elton as a as a boss when it comes to how particular he was with the drum parts he wanted, or is that more from Nigel that kind of guided you? You know, quite honestly, it's the songs that guide you, you mm -hmm. know, those, those songs play themselves. Yes, they do. Uh, you know, I remember playing the whole set with Elton and just that arc and that curve of not only a timeline of music, but it was a timeline of my life. Oh, you know, like, oh, my God, I remember this in seventh grade and OK, eighth grade, I got my second skateboard and, you know, I just everything kind of just arced into this life frame, you know, if you will. And so because those songs are all so iconic, the jump parts you can't really mess with, you know, mm -hmm. they are what they are. And uh, especially when Nigel plays, it's outstanding. And um Elton being the consummate musician and music uh, lover, and he knows every style of music. Like he could, he could sit down with like any style of artist, EDM, drum and bass. He could he could sit with anybody and completely hold court because he knows a lot of music. Mm -hmm. So being in his band, it was really cool because he just appreciated um, great musicians, you know. Uh, I'm not saying I'm great, but he appreciated. He I'll appreciated, say you're great. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. But but he appreciated your contribution and your musicality and your musicianship. So that was a big plus in being in, in his band. And um, you know, with him, you had to bring it because those songs again play themselves. And if you didn't know the song, you know, it was pretty much expected that you know his music. Sure. As as you should, <laughs> he's like a institution, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's very few people <laughs> that that don't know his songs. I I I'm, I'm sure there are songs that are kind of deep cuts that you guys play live, but yeah, but totally. still, um, what this is just a personal thing. What was your favorite Elton John song to play? Oh man, all of them, and I'm being honest because again, it was a timeline of my life, so it reminded me of certain things. But also because, man, there's such great songs. You know, he's a he's one of our like great, you know, pillars of artists. You know, 
Absolutely. That he'll always stand the test of time, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was always a joy to play those songs with him. I love it. And, and, and again, to bring up Nigel, I mean, to just be on stage with him oh. and just having to get inside his pocket and just, I mean, that's, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm so jealous, but also so stoked that you got to do that. Oh, um, man. It was so joyous. It's incredible. Let me just, because um, I had a feeling you were going to say all of them. So I just chose Saturday Night, <laughs> Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I'm going to play a little bit of that because that is something that I still play all the time to try and get that syncopation, you know, um, in the beginning of the song to get those right. And a lot of those open hi-hat kind of pushes and stuff. It's such a fun song to play and kind of ahead, yeah. ahead of its time in a lot of ways. So yeah, um, let's just play Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. You know what I noticed about that when I'm listening in my headphones right now is that they do something, and, I, and I've heard you talk about this, you and me are similar, we pan, we pan the drums from the drummer's perspective, and that song uh, is panned from the audience's perspective. The hi-hats were in the, right, the right-hand side. Drives um, me nuts. I, I'm with you, man. That's like such a nuanced thing, but it's, it, it really is frustrating for me. Yeah, if you want to start like a big brawl on social media, ask the question, drummer perspective or audience perspective, and man, you'll get thousands of people just like, oh man, it's gotta be this way. Well, one of my views, and this is kind of, and maybe you share this, that one of my goals as a drummer, while still being a a servant to the song, you always wanna have a moment in a song where people air drum along to your drum part, or yeah. like any like the most non-musical person just knows how to go da 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 da, right. and if that's the goal, you want to do it from you know the guy or girl in their car, they want to be behind the drum set, so you want to mix it as if they want to play it with you as if they're the drummer. So that's that that was always my perspective. Everyone wants yeah. to be in the band when you're listening, um, but I get it, I get it. Yeah, the steering wheel starts on the left. Exactly. Exactly. And then you work your way to the dashboard, the dashboard to the shift knob, exactly. shift knob to the glove compartment. Yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> totally. All right. So um, we can move on to n- number three. Come on. All right. So this is uh, going to be you when you played on the first Seal record. Ooh. So that was wild. And then I want to play Future Love Paradise. And I'm going to start it at about 55 mark, because that's that's when the when the, the the drums kind of start kicking in. OK. Don't you know that race is a minimum future kids can only live to no good. Besides your sons and daughters, I don't know how that feels. One day, one day. 
Alright, so that was Future Love Paradise, and the song before that was Wild from Seal's first record. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It brings back so many memories. You know, I spent over a month in London at Sarm West uh, recording that record. And um, my dear friend Jamie Mahobrak brought me in to do that. And so the both of us were in a flat together in London and recording every day. And uh, man, when a, it, it, it's a groundbreaking record for sure. Mm-hmm. It broke a lot of ground um, um, just way ahead of its time. I think, and it still stands up today. There's still, there's still a lot of, still a lot of spark there. I think. I, would, I mean, that's in one of my notes. I want to talk about, especially Future Love Paradise. That song, I mean, that's what that what came out in ninety one. Ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like the sound of the nineties. That record. Yeah. It's yeah. it's so it's so progressive and so ahead of its time, and yeah. it's got a cool mixture of, of can drums. The whole record has can drums and real live drums and the way it's mixed in, you almost can't tell sometimes. Is that them just really, you know, focusing on the EQ and making it sound canned? It's it's really cool. I'm going to show you the secret to most or all of those songs. I love it. Drum wise. <laughs> I don't want to cut well, this out. I want to get the rumbling to people for, uh, for the suspense. Okay. So when I did the record, it was pre-Pro Tools. It was actually done with computers sequencing, with me playing live drums uh, on half of the record, live drums, and then the other half played on this. There you go. Yeah. Drum cat. Drum cat, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of those grooves I played on the drum cat and... It was triggering MIDI, and um, I still play this thing. I I love this thing, man. I use it with with uh, Superior Drummer. Sure. And to me, this thing is still the best MIDI controller out there. I don't care what anyone says. It just is. It works, you know. We're starting a lot of fights here on this uh, episode. <laughs> I know, I know. But but in terms of in terms of um, just controllability and and the latency and all that. Because there's no, you're not having to deal with sounds. It's just giving off triggering information. To me, it's the quickest out there. Do you have a foot pedal? Is it? Is there? Oh, there is a foot pedal attachment. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, the company went out of business, but the kick drum pedal is called a Fat Cat, and the other hi hat pedal is called a Hat Cat. And it was made by um, oh god, I forgot the name of the company, but he went out of business, unfortunately. But um, I, and I don't, I honestly don't know what other companies make controller pedals. Mm-hmm. But man, that this was the magic combo way back when, and it still works. You know, isn't Fat Cat? I mean, I, I think Neil Peart used a Fat Cat pedal on some of his stuff. Yeah, yeah, he did, and he used the Pole Cat, I think, which was the the black pole that you could mount on a stand, and it had two rubber pads on it, and you could trigger different sounds that's awesome yeah it would kind of fit anywhere yeah that's sick yeah uh eric slick from the band dr dog who's uh, a friend of the podcast and he has been doing a lot of cool videos of putting like pvc pipe 
uh, sounds on his drum cat and making yeah. really cool. I mean, it sounds like Michael Bay kind of uh soundtrack sounds you're like oh that sounds like it could be like in some really like chase scene you know it's it's the sounds are awesome and 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 they don't cut off each other it just sounds really really natural sounding yeah yeah totally how would you i mean this is this this leads me to my next question because you're kind of the person to talk to about being really big in the recording scene in the 80s into the 90s how was the transition from going from analog to digital? Was it a lot of people resisted it? Or were, you, were people like you being like, oh, this sounds more efficient. It's cool. Uh, you can use it as an instrument as opposed to this thing that's making you feel, you know, it's taking away all your feel. Um, I'll stop putting words in your mouth. But how did you, how did the L.A. scene react to that, if you remember? Well, I think it, they they embraced it because there was so much recording going on back then because there were still record labels there was still artist development there was still you know uh, um, there was still labels there was mm-hmm. still an, an industry that supported music in in a high fashion so it was just a natural progression I think for it to go from two inch tape to record music on two inch to the digital format uh, because it made editing a lot easier and it made the sessions go a lot faster. There, what you know, the first thing I remember is not having to wait for the tape to rewind. Mm. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Wow, really? We got to do it again?" I, I'm just catching my breath. You know, I just remember that being a weird thing, like not hearing, <laughs> you know, yeah. not hearing that, and going from like, okay, the end of the song to the beginning, go, you know. Now when you hear that, it's just the bass player talking, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, we'll be right back with the show, but I wanted to take a second to talk about Waves Audio. This podcast would take me so much longer to edit if it wasn't for the Waves Vocal Writer plugin. It rides the fader in real time and keeps both my and my guest's audio at a consistent level without the need to overcompress. I also use an endless amount of their plugins for my musical recordings, such as Abbey Road Saturator, CLA Drums, the SSL channel, and many more. We're an affiliate member, so if this show has brought you any sort of value, the next time you purchase any Waves plugins, please use the link via the show notes. You directly support the show and little old me. All right, now back to the five ways to color in uh, inside the lines. Bye. All right, so number four is is huge to me, and it's uh, when you got to play with Mick Jagger on his uh, Wandering Spirit record. Yeah. So, and again, I think it was decide- his management that called and said, "Hey, Mick's putting a band together to record and tour, and um, he's holding auditions at the power plant here in Los Angeles. Can you be here at this time?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure." So I showed up, and um, man, there were some heavies. Um, this one guy I will mention only because he was the one before me. And we always tell this story. And uh, and I always tell it because I adore him dearly. But it, it was Stephen Perkins. He, oh. auditioned, <laughs> he auditioned before me. And it was a hired kit. You know, it was one of the kits that they had at the rehearsal hall. And I was auditioning after him. And I went in there to audition when it was time. And the freaking drum heads look like satellite dishes he was hitting so hard that's like it was right it was unplayable and i i tell this story all the time it's like yeah man stephen perkins hits hard (laughs) so yeah i think i had to like ask the uh management hey ken can i take 
10, 15 minutes and replace these drum heads, you know, so the rehearsal hall, they had to get new drum heads and put them on there and tweak them up because they were just unplayable after Steven got a hold of them. <laughs> I can see that as being a gamble because that could either make you look, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way because I might have done the same thing. Like you can either go, oh, he's a diva or he really cares. And that's, that's and we like that, you know, something like that could be. Uh, taken both ways obviously it went in your favor but uh well, yeah well yeah i mean you know you you want to represent yourself the best way possible both visually and sonically and exactly when the drums sound like ass you don't want to play an ass drums sure i'm with you i don't i don't i'll take the time out and change the heads and sure i, I don't think it's i see your point though of it being <laughs> kind of diva like but but if it sounds like ass, which it did, it was like, okay, it's, I got to unass this. Yeah. No, and of, <laughs> and of course, I would have assumed that. It's just I can see some music director like, ah, oh, drummers, they all sound the, it's going to sound the same whether it's new heads or not. You know, they could have that perspective. And like, yeah, just shut I'm up just and gonna, play. Yeah. yeah, just shut up and play because I'm exactly. going to sound replace you anyway. So exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you, when you, again, this is just more selfish for me, I, I try and get, specific questions because they pop into my head but when you go to a cattle call like that do you reset up the kit to fit your body more or do you just kind of go like i just i'm just trying to absorb the vibe of everyone else and sit down maybe adjust the snare drum a little bit but do you just kind of just it's set up the way it is just do your thing or do you take the time and you know? all the auditions and sit-ins i've ever done in my life i never touch the kit only because it's like a i like the challenge sure b I don't want to mess it up for the, the drummer who's actually playing the kit, you know, all mm -hmm. night. See, um, it, it is what it is because you're there for that moment. And why, like, try to tighten or unloosen a wing nut and cut your knuckle on the hardware right before you play? It's like, I don't want to goof with that. Let me just, let me get behind a kit and play and split. That's all I want to do. But, um yeah, I left it pretty much the way Steven left it in shambles. And I just I just played. Yeah. You know, I changed the heads, of course, but I played. Yeah. And so what uh what song did you play? Well, I I told this story before, but and I'll tell you guys. Um you know, I, I was noticing all the drummers that were going into audition, you know, they were going in and playing all the classic stone songs you know paint it black you know brown sugar you know every every classic stone song you know so so mick could check them out so i was like you know how am i going to approach this when it's my turn mm -hmm. and uh i remember reading an, an interview that mick was a huge fan and disciple of james brown Oh, okay. It makes sense. Yeah. And, and so me had played with Morris and, uh, you know, already done the whole Morris Day thing and played funk with, you know, all the top funk dudes. Yeah. I was like, all right, if he's a James Brown guy, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, surprise him with something. So, so it was my turn to audition. He said, all right, cut. What song would you like to play? And I'm like, let's play cold sweat by James Brown nailed it <laughs> and his eyes just got huge he's like all right then we'll play cold sweat james brown and so yeah. we go into this 20 minute jam of cold sweat and he starts doing the chicken dance 
Oh, yeah. You know, he's sweating and starts getting into the whole Mick maneuvering and just his dance. And it's just like, wow. And I'm back there playing Cold Sweat and there's Mick Jagger singing Cold Sweat. So this goes on 15, 20 minutes and then we end it. And he's like, all right, next week we start rehearsal. I'll see you then. Put on his coat and he split. And I was like, I guess I got the gig. And That's musical, so awesome. Yeah, the musical director looked at me and goes, all right, we'll see you next week. Welcome aboard. And I'm like, yes. And uh, so, yeah, I, you actually have if and I don't I want to confirm this with you. It sounds like it at the beginning of Wired All Night. You actually are the first vocal you hear on that record. Am I mistaken? That's, that's that me. Right? Count it off. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and play Wired All Night from Mick Jagger's uh, solo record Wandering Spirit. That snare sounds so good. I love it. And then I also want to play one more song from that record uh, called Don't Tear Me Up. Life is rich, but it's way too short. You make a lot of money, but you just want more. Don't need the pain right here in my heart. But I hate it for a minute so far apart. songs sound like especially that one sounds like that was a jam like that that sounds like a very live recording that to know in order to write those dynamics on that song that's just a bunch of people yeah playing you know we together. did pre-production for that record we rehearsed for a month before we recorded so to get them tight to get them live sounding you know in that that album you uh we had him on the show earlier but use me by bill weathers is a song that was played on that record as well, which is, of course, James Gadsden on the drums. And so I do want to play your version with Mick Jagger from that record uh, right now, because I love that song. That that organ line is so good. Yeah, that's uh, the great Billy Preston on organ and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers on bass. Oh, really? Did and, not know that. That's and awesome. Lenny Kravitz, co-vocals. Co 
the Chris Farley in me just wants to keep coming out. <laughs> My friends. It's so fun to play that, though. Yeah. You can tell Mick's having so much fun singing this song. Totally. You can hear his dancing in his vocals. Truly. There's Lenny. I didn't realize how much his delivery is very similar to Bill Withers. Yeah, you know, it was surprising that Mick and Rick Rubin wanted to do it in that fashion, you know, kind of like the original. Because, I don't know, I always felt that it would have been way funkier to play on snare drum and make it a little slower or faster. You know, just mm-hmm. to change the vibe. But, you know, after all these years, it's like, it is what it is. It's it's great. It's a great song. You know, it's, it's sung both by Mick and, and Lenny. So, can't beat it. If no, it, you can't. If it ain't fixed, don't break it. <laughs> Amen to that. So, how... You seem like a very relaxed guy. How do you get over the the nerves of playing with... I mean, Mick is known for being in a band with some of the best rhythm section people in the world. How do you get over the fact that, like... I mean, you are obviously very proficient at your instrument. I love your pocket. But everyone has imposter syndrome. Everyone. How do you get over that element of, okay, I'm playing with Mick Jagger right now, you know? You know, I fanboy out whenever I'm with great... <laughs> great artists that i've played with through the years you know i i I fanboy just as bad as the rest of us you know but then i have that moment of realization of like okay i'm here for a purpose and that purpose is to be the drummer Mm -hmm. and so then i got to put on the professional face and the professional attitude and the 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 all, all of that don't get me wrong. Deep down inside, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. my God. That's Elton John right there. You know, I I can't even tell you, man. Like, Steve, I played behind Stevie Wonder. I played behind so many people. And inside, I'm like, you know, on the outside, I got the serious face on. Like, yeah, I'm, sure. I'll play drums for you. And I, I got you, man. But inside, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I am. You know, that's just. I, and, and And I think that that keeping that excitement keeps you fresh and it keeps you inside the music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How I do want to talk one more thing about Mick Jagger before Come moving on. on, but how was writing with him and jamming with him? Can you describe a little bit of his nonverbal communication? Like when you could tell he was really digging something, cause you were talking about the chicken, the chicken dance or the rooster dance. What'd you call it? I don't know what that is. What is that? Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that, that. is, but, that would happen if he was digging something. Yeah. You know, and he would sway back and forth. You know, that swagger that he does is just, you know, every artist has their quirks. I call them quirks. You know, when Elton was digging on something, he'd be hunched over and peeping over his glasses with a big That's smile. Awesome. Yeah. You know, Mick would do his thing. And, you know, Morris had his head going back and forth. So every artist, you know, even in a band that you play with, 
your singer or whoever's fronting the band, you could tell their quirk and you could tell what quirk makes them excited and they're digging it or what quirk makes them not dig what you're doing or they're, yeah. or they're not liking what they're hearing. That's one of the gifts of being a drummer is that we are in the back. So we're perched in the perfect place to see the whole thing. The mm-hmm. keyboard player, the singer, the guitar player, the bass player, you know, the audience. So we get to read and watch what's happening, you know? Yeah. And that's such an important aspect of being a drummer. And I can't stress that enough, you know, to don't ever shoegaze as a drummer. Don't ever, you know, you could look down and groove or whatever and get that going on, but it's always important to be looking around on the stage and around in the room if you're recording and to capture the vibe and the essence of the music. You know, because mm-hmm. it's so easy to have headphones on or get into your own world when you're playing that you forget that these other four or five, six people are are there with you making music, you know. I love it. And before we move on to the next one, which is more of a, a jazz uh, trio based thing, um, I did want to because we're going that that direction i saw a really cool video of you playing jazz drums with joe piccaro and yeah can you talk a little bit about your relationship with joe as a teacher and just a mentor yeah he was the him and ralph humphrey were the reasons why i went and moved down to los angeles to go to musicians institute you know i saw Mm -hmm. i saw that ad that they would run in modern drummer and i was like okay once i graduate high school i'm going there yeah and, uh, you know, so he was really instrumental in me wanting to go to school. And also, I really wanted to go so I could learn how to read. I wasn't a, re- a reader prior to uh, to going there. So I really wanted to get that together. And um, thank God, because while I was going there, his son, Jeff, was keeping an eye on me. Hmm. And uh, it was Jeff that got me into this session scene here in los angeles man so you know without joe and jeff you know my career would have gone another way they are icons in the world of i mean i i think maybe in the younger generation more people are associating you know i guess jeff with with drumming but joe's on all those total records i mean joe's the father of mike steve and i mean he's a huge part of that whole scene as well yeah i mean he he moved here, him and Emil Richards from Connecticut, and they made a name for the for themselves here in Los Angeles. And you know, when Joe moved here with I, I forgot he told me the story, but it was little to no money and four kids in a station wagon. And look at the legacy he's left behind, you know. Mm-hmm. And the dude has played on a gajillion movies, a gajillion records. You know, that's just him. Then you have his sons that played on a gajillion sessions, a gajillion records, and they had Toto. Yeah. So, you know, that family alone has just been a a big staple in the L.A. music scene for sure. And Joe, you know, just, um, you know, we lost him last year. And, uh, you know, I'll always be forever grateful. He was a dear friend, you know we'd go over to his house or he'd come over here and, you know, we'd just break bread. And half of the time was never talking about drumming. You know, he became a dear friend and um, I'm going to miss him. Yeah. I'm going to miss him. Well, he's, 
more so than any drummer or a lot of drummers, his legacy through music's living on. You can, you know, hear him every day. So yeah. Um, going on to number five, which is your new band, uh, is it's pronounced uh, Biscadini? Biscadini. All right. Yeah. Which is it's uh, the Biscadini Organ Trio. Yes, it is. And the website's biscadini.com, B-I-S-C-O-D-I-N-I. That's it. And and yeah, so you get to have a little more of your trio jazz shops. And I, I was listening to this uh, prior to our conversation. It's really it's really well-recorded and really fun music. Fun titles, too. You guys had some fun with the titles. Uh, Karen, stay home. <laughs> which is, I'm assuming you're meeting the theoretical manager calling Karen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole... The, the whole reason the name of the record is called Lockdown is that we recorded this record separately during lockdown when it started last year. Oh, okay. So, you know, the record was done separately. I would record the drums first and then send it out to the guitar player, John Cudini, and the B3 player, Scott Healy. And um, that's how we recorded the record. And my dear friend, Bob Daspit, mixed it and mastered it. And, uh, you know, just a little bit of background about the band. Yeah. Scott Healy was the keyboard player uh, for the Conan O'Brien show for 20 some odd years. Oh, wow. And John Cudini's guitar player who needs no introduction. This guy has been the musical director for Peggy Lee and um, Natalie Cole. Um, you know, and he's been on a ton of records, you know, just a jazz giant. And, uh, and then there's me. <laughs> and then, um, yeah. So Who also just, needs no introduction, by the way. But, yeah. And so we just decided to make this record, you know, separately and during the times, you know, because we couldn't get together. Because, you know, prior to the pandemic, we we would play at the Big Potato in Los Angeles, you know, as mm. a trio and, and other places. But, you know, it was looking dire as it is for all of us and still is unfortunately yeah um but it's like hey what are we gonna do and i was like you know what let's make a record we're here we're home what, what else are we gonna do so i just started off with the grooves and set it out and we came up with 10 songs on the album lockdown and it's available streaming everywhere so check it out yeah let, yeah. Me, let me play a few songs there's two songs that really stood out to me which is 2020 shuffle and Canyon Road. Okay, and cool. You, your shuffle on 2020 shuffle is so filthy. You're so behind <laughs> the beat, and it sounds so good. But let me just go ahead and play that for our millions of listeners. That's my lame approach, trying to be Chris Layton. <laughs> well, whatever you're doing is working, so here it is. <laughs> That was 2020 Shuffle, and now let's go to yeah. Canyon Road. Yeah. 
such a vibe. I gotta ask, what sticks, uh, hot rods? What are you using on that song? Because those, it doesn't sound like brushes, obviously, but it it sounds soft but has attack to it. What are you What are you doing on that song, Canyon Road? Those are the fusion acorns from Vader. Okay. And just the way it was mixed, you know, it was mixed mm. far behind, and so it made it sound a little soft because I didn't want it to be overbearing. Yeah. And then that little loop that you hear at the front, that's um, a loop, a bossa nova loop from a Wurlitzer fun machine. From, oh, awesome. Uh, from Scott's keyboard in his living room. <laughs> so, so odd. Yeah. Yeah, some of those even like like the, the Casio drum loops that you have on like the cheapest pianos if you play those and and reamp them and stuff they can they're pretty cool yeah they're fun man yeah it's fun i mean the record sounds amazing and you were talking about how you recorded that at home is that a newer venture for you or how long have you been able to record at your own your own spot you know i've been doing home recording now i was one of the last holdouts to do it you know because i mm -hmm. was under the impression and i was like oh man there's gonna be a a renaissance of recording studios and labels and every day and every year and every month I said that it was just, <laughs> you know, studios closing, labels folding, everything just yeah. going away, you know, everything had, it just kept going away. So, mm -hmm. you know, I started, gosh, maybe 12 years ago, starting to record at home and I've uh, been doing it ever since, you know, if, and if there's a, if there's a, um, session to do outside of the home I'll, i'm i'll do it of course not now because of the pandemic but you sure know, when, when it was safer absolutely um but yeah it's i i think it's the new way you know because of us having to do zoom and having to be lighting experts and camera experts and <laughs> you know do interviews over the internet you know so we have to do music that way as well till it's completely safe to get back on the road and get back in the studios and make music again with humans at the same time. Well, speaking of uh, recording for people, I mean, do you, where can people find you? Cause we'll, we'll wrap up the interview. Where can people find you? Cause obviously you can get amazing sounds and you can record from them from yes. your spot now. So how, how would people, uh, what, what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, just go to my website, kurtbiscara.com. Okay. And there are links to all my ways you could get a hold of me through Instagram or Twitter. Um, I also do drum coaching uh, at lessonsquad.com. And uh, yeah, if you need me to do tracks, just hit me up. Uh, Kurt at kurtbiscara.com is my email. And um, I work for burritos. <laughs> All not, right, re not, all right. re not really, but we'll figure <laughs> something out, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to cut that out, so I'm sorry. <laughs> you just screwed yourself there, Kurt. That's all right. Yeah, man. So you could also check me out on YouTube, Kurt Pascara, Kirky B, Drum Hacks with Espresso. So I give you some little drum hack tips that I do along with some delicious espresso. What, you know, what drummer doesn't love coffee? Yeah. Although, <laughs> I think I mostly like the coffee for all the vanilla sugar I put inside <laughs> it, but... The coffee's a good afterthought. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I, I do have to say, uh, from I know I don't talk about, I try and avoid doing like the product placement with, with Big Fat Snare Drum on here, but you have been one of the early and consistent champions for us. There it is right there. Um, and I can't express how much we appreciate you. I mean, to have you play our stuff is an honor because uh, you are so 
focused on good sounds and uh it really means a lot so thank you so much it's it's an honor and pleasure and fyi that whole biscadini record i recorded on a four by 14 copper dw snare drum using the um what's the og donut what's that called steve's donut steve's donut yeah steve's donut i'm gonna do a unauthorized plug right now for you guys okay. but, but you. seriously using using this big fat snare drum product specifically the the snare muffles or donuts or whatever yeah whatever you want to call them it just made so much sense that you guys came up with them because we're all looking for you know as drummers we want that fat sound and we're under the impression that you need you know like an eight inch deep snare drum to do so but again i use a, a shallow snare drum finger tight with one of these a steve's donut or you know a full what do you call the full one with no hole the original that's the name of it yeah, yeah. so the og one like this or yeah. the steve's donut and you put that on a on a on a shallow snare drum tuned down all the way like finger tight and you will have serious obesity going on <laughs> With your snare drum sound, yeah, you know, and it may, right, and it may not sound that way, like sonically as you're playing it, but when you record it, oh my god, it's like, it's like complete like, fat, fatness. And I I, I do want to echo what you're saying there, as a lot of people don't realize when they put on anything in the studio in this context, specifically a big fat snare drum, that don't go off what it sounds like when you're sitting above it from two feet away. Listen to how it sounds through a through a microphone that's that's the sound you're going for because more often than not it sounds like crap in the room not just like a lot of things you do in the studio cymbal stuff whatever listen in the control room it's different oh yeah totally yeah and I, that's that's a great thing to bring up Ben, because um you know we, we we think what we hear in in uh you know on a record or whatever we could achieve that on the kit live in the room and it's only like halfway Mm -hmm. because we, what you have to remember there's microphones involved and compressors and eq so the best you could get it sounding in the room then it makes it easier for the engineer or yourself to to dial it in but yeah you're right you know half of the sound is 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 you and the other half is in the in the daw well kirky b thank you so much i appreciate you taking the time dude anytime man i had fun have a great day man you too we'll talk soon and that's the show be sure to subscribe and if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews do that it helps more people find the show which means the show will get better and bigger and hopefully i'll have a chance to sell out one day but you'd be an og listener that could brag to all your friends um, anyways also why don't you go ahead and check out bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on instagram facebook twitter and all the socials just search for at bigfatsnaredrum and you will find it this show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at isotope.com. Bye.